welcome back to Arena On Air. This is Sky Lindberg. And I'm Brian DeMeo. This week's episode is another live podcast featuring our most recent Arena Civil Dialogue. This dialogue explored the notion of well-being in the digital world. The featured dialogue starters included Maggie Jackson, an award-winning author and journalist. Her arguments focused on growing concerns that as we continue to quote-unquote connect online, our real-world connections are dwindling, and what are the ramifications of that? Maurice Turner, president and executive director of Electronic Privacy Information Center, said something that I thought was really interesting. Coming at the topic from a somewhat anthropological and cultural perspective, he talked about how humans are not necessarily addicted to screens, humans are addicted to stories, and the internet is full of stories. He also talked about the idea of safety and regulating safety online from the perspective of how we regulate safety in other areas. Nima Singh Guliani, Legislative Counsel with the American Civil Liberties Union, focused on data acquisition and privacy concerns. She talked about the amount of data we are providing to apps and websites on a daily basis and how our laws have not caught up to the protecting of our privacy. And lastly, we had Ellen P. Goodman, co-director and co-founder of the Rutgers Institution for Information Policy and Law. She spoke about our dependencies on the internet, the way we access information, the spaces that we store our information, and even how we navigate our cities are dependent on just a few platforms. And she predicts that our dependencies on these few platforms will only increase as time goes on. The conversation definitely sparked insights and even more questions regarding how we use the internet. Thank, thank you very, very much. It, indeed, it was a, it's a pleasure to work with you and the other arena uh, staff and colleagues. We have been, uh, our last one was about a meeting between Trump supporters and Trump, Trump critics. And you see the stage is still in one piece. So it all... It was very, very uh, civil. So I very much appreciate you you reading uh, this uh, Declaration of Independence, which was issued in 1996. That's not that long ago, a little more than 20 years. At that time, the idea was, and Barlow just captured, I think, quite well, that the Internet is going to be this wonderful harmonic village in which things will self-regulate, take care of himself, and all we need to do is keep bad government out, and uh, everything is going to be hunky-dory. Today, I think many of us believe that at least it it became a city, and some of us feel a jungle, where we have a large variety of problems, uh, from uh, cyberbullying to uh, using uh, foreigners using... Uh, Facebook and Google uh, to uh, uh, try to manipulate our uh, uh, election to uh, p- some people feel uh, we, uh, people lose connectiveness to each other uh, children get addicted to the screens uh, and 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 ever more problems and the question for us tonight is uh, what is the nature of these problems and how can we uh, uh, deal with them, uh, it seems just, just leaving internet alone, not all of us feel any more uh, comfortable. Uh, I'd just like to add one more comment and then I'll turn to my colleagues. In effect, you think about it as a case study in a much larger problem. 
And that throughout modernization, what happens again, 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 that some engineers and scientists or entrepreneurs come up with a new technology and they introduce it into social society and we need to adapt. There's no committee meetings which uh, asks, uh, do we want to have that new thing? Uh, is it uh, morally, ethical, or socially productive? Uh, we are now, we're gonna have a future session on uh, bioengineering, which people talk about engineering our futures or our babies. There is no committee or commission or congressional or anybody who is asked the question, do we want that? Technology marches on and we forever try to catch up. We are moral and political institutions however lagging. So from my viewpoint at least, the issue in front of us is a typical case study. In what happened when you have a new technology and we somehow have to come to terms with whatever it jumps on us. So the answer reminds me of a story about a couple who went to a rabbi and asked the rabbi to settle a dispute. So the rabbi first called in the husband, the husband made his case, the rabbi said, you're absolutely right. Then he called in the wife, and the wife made her case, and the rabbi said, you're absolutely right. So when the wife of the rabbi heard that, she was indignant, and she said, how can you do that? How can you say both the wife and the husband is right? And he said, you know what, you're also right. <laughs> uh, that reminds me, when we talk about, should it be government regulation? Should it be self-regulated? Should it be third parties, should it be the parents? That's our subject. We have a tradition of not introducing the speakers. You have their bios uh, in your uh, programs. Originally, we were going to go through four questions, but to leave more time for discussion, we're going to group them into two groups. So our first question for the panel is, is, is there a problem? How serious is the problem? What is the nature of a problem we face in cyberspace and what do you think we should do about it? Okay, I'll try to be very quick. Um, but thank you so much, Amitai, uh, for putting this together and all of you for coming. Um, as far as challenges, there are so many to choose from. Um, I'd like to talk just for a minute about a challenge that I see potentially underlying many of the in our faces you know, on fire, wildfire type problems um, that you mentioned from cyberbullying to the, you know, fake news. Um, and that has to do with cognition. You know, I just want to um, think a little bit about um, how this habitat is changing us in ways that we do not perhaps know or that we're only beginning to wake up to. In other words, unintended consequences that have been perhaps invisible until now. And, and just to start, it's really important to understand or to um, you know, basically be aware of how the, uh, technology so quickly has changed from a box that we had to walk across the room to click on to enter and exit. And now it's a habitat. You know, we're dealing with things that think 
uh, and the privacy issues. We're dealing with you know, sneakers that monitor us. We're dealing with Alexa and Siri and toddlers who uh, think that they're playmates and et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's our ether, it's our habitat, and therefore any animal in a ha certain habitat is going to be affected and shaped. And what concerns me is the changing in what it means to know how we're creating knowledge, how we're creating meaning-making. Just for instance, some recent um, research has been looking at uh, how, what happens when we search online. And it's something that happens all the time, it, and the instantaneity is so for, at the forefront of this process. We get an answer before we even finish answering a question. And the new research is showing that, you know, first of all, People, after just Googling or searching online very briefly, um, actually has, they have a significantly less willingness to wrestle with a, a complex problem later. Their need, quote unquote need for cognition drops. Um, that's very interesting. And as well, a little bit of Googling online and um, they become, they become um, very willing to overestimate what they know. Even if the time online didn't reap a, uh, correct or any answer at all. People overestimate then what they can do without the machine. Um, so I think that this is, you know, these sorts of studies are actually reflected in how people are operating. You know, we tend, to, most of the time we tend to um, take exactly what comes up first in our searches. Um, most people don't flip to the second page of search results. And uh, most Americans in studies, shockingly as it might be, still trust what they find online. And today, the OAC, according to OECD measures, um, comparing Americans' ability to um, solve problems in a technical, in a digital sphere, um, we're woefully um, below most de developed countries. Um, you know, information literacy tells us the same thing. So I think that, you know, our, can we consider that what we know is changing to be something quick, easy, packaged, downloadable. And what does that mean about how we're making knowledge? And of course, this is occurring uh, against the backdrop of a more uh, manipulative, algorithmic, robotic kind of context. I'll just throw out two very quick other uh, components of the context in which, the, in which this changing knowledge seeking is occurring. One is the context is splintered, that kind of multitasking that undercuts our ability to um, deliberate. Um, it's also, um, you know, we're, we're um, you know, just a, it's a silent phone now uh, on the table undercuts fluid reasoning, ability to grapple with a problem. So these are kind of, I think, issues behind the headlines and something that really needs to be watched and something that has everything to do with well-being. Um, so as far as a solution, well, that's a, that's a tall order. I mean, I'm talking about cultural, intellectual things. But I would just throw out a couple. One is on the user end. The other is on the inventor end. Um, what the one solution I would say, um, and it, there's so much more we can do, but one very major solution, I think, um, is a miss up, missed opportunity. Uh, in this country, we've been woefully ineffective despite throwing more resources at the issue of information literacy or digital literacy. This is something that's really been talked about 
really been studied from kindergarten on into higher education, and um, basically it's been very ineffective so far. And a lot now, some in some universities, librarians, technologists are kind of waking up to the idea that um, you know what has the re, the main re, um, re, research and uh, teaching has been related to um, sources. So. You know, kids are being taught, and they also gravitate toward finding and listing and stacking sourcing together. When really the evaluation, which is where we score so poorly in international studies, is not being taught. And that's a grave um, missed opportunity. Um, even something as little as changing the language, um, you know, from um, finding sources in research to learning about a topic shifts the way students actually approach. It, it, it reinstalls the curiosity that's being lost. Um, and just secondly, very quickly, I'd say that accountability on the part of invent inventors, the technologists themselves, is finally something that's being you know, woken up to. The IEEE, the largest trade association in the world related techno technology, is now floating standards for creating ethical design in AI and robotics. This is really important. You can Google it and, do and make a public comment yourself, uh, ethically aligned design. And you know, there's, their standards and their calls are saying, you know, let's halt the dis disassociation from the social impact of our inventions. So I think on that score, and I could say a lot more about that, but I've heard for so many years about private qualms about technologists who are building devices that affect our health, affect our minds. And I think, finally, we're maybe getting a little bit of traction on that. Um, there's so much more I think I could say. I didn't even touch on regulation. Um, but I, I think that this is the ethical, deliberative, you know, thinking and understanding and more metacognitive perspective on what thinking is today is a really important um, challenge for us to face. I'll jump in um, right there and say, yes, I do think that government regulation is needed in this space. Um, it's an issue of safety. And we found that in other areas, uh, when safety um, is the critical factor, that we, we can't just depend on the industries themselves, the, the inventors. Um, those that are making money off of it, and most certainly the users, we can't depend on all of those three somehow magically working in concert to make sure that they're all looking out for every consumer um, uh, that ends up using the product and exists within the ecosystem. Um, it certainly didn't happen uh, when we were talking about electricity. Uh, it didn't happen when uh, we are talking about building safety. Uh, it didn't happen when we are talking about automobiles. Um, it wasn't that long ago um, when safety was just a luxury item. And it really took acts of Congress to get that turned around. And wouldn't you know it, the industry responded and figured out a way to sell safety as a feature. And that is something that I believe well, you know, we've had decades of car buyers accustomed to looking at 
safety aspects of the vehicle to help determine whether or not they were going to make that purchase and be satisfied with that pur purchase and recognize the value of it every day. Um, now, I don't think people are driving around praising their airbag that hasn't gone off, um, but when you find someone who has been involved in a collision and the features of the vehicle that have contributed to saving their lives um, have kicked in, they are certainly hyper aware of it and then thankful that those features were there. Um, we don't have that safety net when it comes to our social interactions online. Um, and then thinking a little bit further, further back in time when it comes to just uh, humans and, and culture, um, I believe it's a little bit more nuanced to say that we're addicted to screens. I believe it really goes back to humans are addicted to stories. I mean, that's what it, it comes down to, um, whether it be sitting around the fire uh, uh, several millennia ago, or reading books, or listening to radio, or watching TV, or now on our phones. Um, we as humans are just addicted to really good stories. Um, and now, as it turns out, we have access to so many more good stories that why wouldn't we want to seek that out? Why wouldn't we want to fill all the time that we can with these stories? Uh, I think it's interesting, uh, you know, we tend to have more free time. Um, you know, historically, we were very accustomed to working long hours from the time that the sun came up until the time that the, the sun went down. Um, but now our, our sense of time and space has been stretched out a little bit more. We have lighting um, and we have these moments in our day where we can fill them in microscopic increments. Uh, you can pull out your phone and just check it for 10 seconds, 15 seconds at a time and get that quick hit of a story. And so I think that it, it takes some retooling to really consider what does it mean to participate um, when we as individuals have so much control over how we fill our time, how we fill our space. And I don't necessarily blame the inventors, the technologists uh, for creating something that meets a need that it seems that we all have as individuals. But I certainly will say that absent a more full dialogue that encompasses millions of people, um, it's up to government to regulate and build these guardrails, build these safety nets to make sure that um, there is a safe place to act to limit the amount of damage that is happening to us as a culture while we discuss how it is we want to interact with having this hyper-connectivity, of having these small screens, having these, small, these large screens, and having the kind of connectivity that we're just not accustomed to having. We don't have the tools uh, as individuals, and I'm not quite sure that parents have the understanding and the tools necessary to be able to pass on good behavior because everybody is learning at once. So you really don't have the expertise. You don't have that history of growing up with it and being able to pass on some of these cautionary tales as stories um, to the next generation. I'd say that we probably need to look to the younger generation who are more accustomed to it to help teach everyone. So that should be a real tip off that we all need to be educated. We all need to have access to better tools. And until we do have that dialogue, until we create those tools and have access to those tools, it is the role of government to step in and say, no, we need to set these boundaries. I think a good example of that would be baseline privacy legislation at the federal level. So to really place a value on individuals' privacy, give them some level of ownership and buy-in and what happens to the data about themselves, and more importantly, how that data interacts with the data um, about those in their community, whether it be on a small scale or even on a macro scale, 
and then provide them tools uh, within the applications and services that they use so they can exercise some agency about it. Because the way that it stands now, it's uh, basically a tragedy of the commons where no one feels like they have power over the information about them that is out there being leveraged by um, other, uh, other companies and services. And even if they did, I don't think that they have an understanding of how they can change the settings within their apps um, to really restrict or even expand how that data is used. Before we move on, I just want to mention one statistics which casts some light on what you just said about security. Long before there was cyberspace, somebody compared how much it costs to save a life by using seat belts, which are required by the government, compared to how much it costs to save a life for driver education. And they found that uh, driver education costs 43 times more than a seat belt. So it suggests that sometimes, at least, there is room for a, a government intervention. Sure. Um, thank you, and, and thank you for putting this together. Um, I guess in the same theme of government regulation, um, I, I want to focus on one area where I do think we need government intervention, and I think that that's controlling access to data. Um, I very much believe that information is power, right? If we think about our phones or our computers today, if somebody had my phone, they could probably tell you what time I woke up. They could probably tell you when I went for a run, who my friends are, my family, my love interests. Um, they could tell you what I did for work, um, some of my thoughts, um, very you know, extremely intimate aspects of my life. And I think that our laws haven't caught up with recognizing that this isn't information that should pass, whether it's to a government or to a private entity that it's not information that should be shared without really strict controls. Um, and I'll give you examples. I think that right now um, our laws that govern when, for example, the police can access your information are outdated. They were written before people even widely use cell phones and widely use the internet. Um, we have a national security agency that collects billions upon billions upon billions of pieces of data points. Um, I think in one of the leaked documents, there was programs where the government collected information about every single phone call um, in, a, in and out of the Bahamas, for example. And unfortunately, I think our laws haven't caught up to where we as individuals feel um, information is sensitive and private, right? Most of us think the time we turn on our phone, the time we log into a Facebook account, where we might be at any given moment, that that's all extremely sensitive. Um, our laws don't always protect that um, from law enforcement and from the government by requiring a warrant or requiring other high standards. And I say that it's important not just because privacy is important in the abstract, but because historically, often information can be used and targeted against those that were most disadvantaged. So when we look at, you know, the 60, in the 60s, um, Martin Luther King Jr was famously considered a quote-unquote national security threat and was surveilled by the government. Um, same with war protesters. Um, today, when we find out more and more information about local law enforcement surveillance, we see them tracking um, Twitter, things like Black Lives Matter protesters, um, other activists. Um, and even, I think, abroad, when we see um, activists and protesters trying to organize to reform um, abuses in government, we often see efforts to to tamp down on them, to get information, to find out where they live, to target them um, in other ways. 
And so I think that, you know, in order to really sustain um, activism, to preserve the First Amendment, um, to make sure that all of these things in our society that are important for us to have functioning democracies, to make sure all of those things survive the internet, um, we very much have to control how the government can get this information to make sure it's only in narrow circumstances when appropriate. Um, and I think part and parcel of that is also, you know, as Maurice has already touched on, um, understanding when private entities should be able to get that information. Um, often private entities may not have the same power as the government, but they impact quite a lot. Um, Facebook can tell you, you know, is Facebook is going to influence what job um, advertisements you see, what ho housing advertisements you see. Um, they can influence your buying choices. Um, and I think that, you know, we as consumers don't really understand how that data can have a very real impact on our life, and there's not yet um, the regulation to make sure that we are really in control of it and it doesn't pass um, to whether it's the government or private actors without um, the right safeguards. So we started with the John Perry Barlow uh, quote, and I think many of us sort of um, snickered at that, and it seems so kind of antique. Um, but the internet that he was imagining was a non-commercial network, and the world that he was coming out of, it was a very homogeneous group of geeks that were building it. Um, and I think if we look at the internet today and the through line from 20 years ago to today, I just want to suggest that none of it was inevitable. Every, the internet that we have now was created by certain structural choices, um, and we can rethink them. Um, and there are, there are um, both industrial changes, uh, inventors' choices, parents' choices, and regulatory choices that we can make to change our digital future. Um, and I want to suggest that the internet that he imagined and that many of us experienced, especially in the early days, was very liberatory. And we suddenly had the world at our fingertips, um, and it felt like a, a huge, uh, very um, free expanse. And the internet that many of us are feeling today is very confining, and we have um, a sense of digital dependency, um, that we are less free than we used to be. And I just want to say a few words about that dependency, what it consists of, how we got there, and how we might, again, think about freeing ourselves um, from it. So um, I think uh, we feel dependent on these basically two or three platforms um, to deliver now for most of us, most of our, um, of our news. Uh, we are dependent on clouds to store all of our content and our music, and we are subject to their rules, and sometimes we find content that we thought we had or owned disappearing, um, even treasured um, pieces of music or, um, or media content. We are dependent on navigation systems. Um, we are dependent on search, and we don't know quite um, how it was served up to us and why the, the selections um, uh, appear as they, as they do, and that's going to become much worse as we all um, start using uh, Alexa and, 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 and voice search as opposed to um, word search because then you just get one answer, so that makes these cognition problems, I, I assume, much more severe. Um, we're going to be increasingly dependent on apps and increasingly concentrated apps um, just for basic services. Like, I don't know if, if you followed this story from San Francisco where public bathrooms are controlled by an app. So you've got to have your smartphone and you've got to have the app on your smartphone in order to get into the bathroom. Um, and so, 
Um, these are not li liberatory uh, technologies um, in these contexts. Um, so what were the structural choices that led us um, to this place? Well, some of them were um, decisions not to intervene, and I'm not talking about the layer of speech or even necessarily privacy, although um, decisions not to value uh, in individual privacy were important. Um, but I think the main one is that, um, are, are, are two sources. Um, one, we decided as a matter of um, public policy uh, that there was no competition harm to having um, Facebook buy Instagram and um, Google buy DoubleClick, which is an ad-serving platform. Um, and basically, uh, we used antiquated antitrust standards um, to essentially allow, allow these two companies um, to become the, the, the BMS that they are now and, and to allow us um, or to allow them to make us so dependent on them. Um, another sort of more geeky uh, choice was to relieve these platforms of any liability that newspapers, for example, bear when they um, circulate def defamatory content, um, also for, for hacks and breaches. So the, the, um, uh, the most recent one, Facebook's, um, uh, the breach of Facebook data, first of all, it only disclosed it as quickly as it did because the Europeans required that disclosure. The U.S. government did not require that disclosure. Um, and, and they are also, it's not really clear what their liability is for um, those kinds of security breaches. So those are a couple, there are you know, many more we could go through, but those were conscious choices that we made um, over the past 20 years um, that brought us to this place. Now in terms of solutions, um, uh, I agree with both, both Maurice and, and Nima that, um, uh, and, and Maggie, I think you have things to say about this too, that there are regulatory interventions that we should be considering. The problem is, is that these are not seat belts because we are dealing with speech. Um, and so, and I think the next round of questions will talk about that. Um, but I just wanted to throw out um, one small suggestion, which comes from the, from the world of, of old media, which also dealt with speech. So we had all these same problems in a much more um, lower degree with, with television. Um, but remember in the 90s when everyone was concerned about violence on television, and um, rather than require TV stations to do something about it, the government um, mandated that TV stations allow parents to do something, but they had to install technology, which was the V-chip. One thing I was just thinking of recently, and those of you who have um, teenage daughters will understand this. I don't think there are any teenage girls in the room, but um, you know, these technologies like Instagram are designed to perfection to prey on teenage girls' self-image problems um, and low self-esteem. And, um, and so the way they do it is they have metrics, which, so if, you, you, you will, if you're a teenage girl, you will wonder, why did I have 300 likes yesterday and today I only have 200? What did I do wrong? What's wrong with me? Why does nobody like me? Um, and uh, it's all about this number. So there's an app that can strip that number out of your um, results. You still have all the pictures and you have all the comments, but you just don't see that number. And you don't see your number of Twitter followers. So one teeny intervention would be, we could require all apps to just make available, all platforms to make available that kind of, um, uh, it's a nudge, it's a psychological nudge 
um, to relieve teenagers, uh, especially teenage girls, of that kind of pain. It's kind of like a V-chip. Um, and I'll have more suggestions when we get to the next section. Well, thank you very much. That was an excellent uh, round. We really covered the waterfront in this very short time. We, we talked about both roles for the private sector, for entrepreneurs, for inventors, for parents, for educators, uh, for technology, and, and for government. And I at least believe we need all of those and some. Now, uh, to save time, we decided not to have four rounds. And we're going to take now, for the last round, two questions are rather different, but will collapse them anyhow, and please indulge me. So one is the question we just uh, 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 heard, and that is uh, there's a growing sense that uh, uh, Facebook and Google uh, need, cannot hold to the position they are just uh, uh, platforms. They're just places where things get communicated, but not responsible for what's being communicated that they are like publishers who have some duties to control what they publish. But when they do that, uh, we jump all over them and say, you don't allow conservative voices. Why did you disallow this one? Why did you allow that one? And so I'd like you to, uh, I grant you another easy question. Would you all play for a moment and assume the unlikely event that Mark Zuckerberg wants to listen to you? So what do you, how do you tell them to get out of this box? And last, uh, and again, uh, granted a rather different subject, but uh, if you allow us to move forward, is it true and is it to be of evidence that uh, the internet is really destroying human connectiveness? Or does it provide a whole new place in which we connect each other? I often think about a single mother in Boston in the winter, which I experienced, and she has a, a, a sixth child, and she wants to interact with somebody. She, she, she cannot go to the neighborhood bar, but she can dial up her internet. So I'm not sure that uh, we only lost connectiveness. Maybe we also got a new kind of connectiveness. Please. Um, I don't know. Okay, yeah, it's working. Um, yes, I think they are very highly interconnected. Um, I think I'd like to, to flip the order and maybe not talk uh, first about um, about free speech, but about how this connectivity is both changing and I think being er eroded. Um, you know, I think that um, you know we talked a little bit about the ideal of hyperconnectedness, mm -hmm. the new sphere people talked about. You know, ever since the days of the telephone, the um, these technologies would connect the entire world in in effortless ways. And now, of course, we have a very new reality. And you know, I think there are two issues. One is the interruption, the siphoning, the dilution of the connections that we do have as human beings, both strong and weak. The second issue is the um, you know setting forward and sometimes in quite intention in, in, in tension with the first the, you know the normal human um, connectivity. Um, the, the, you know, the setting up of new types of connections, both the online and then the, the relationship we increasingly have with the machine, with robots, with um, our devices themselves. And so just briefly, um, you know, the idea, there's a, I was interviewing families recently about something, a new term called technoference. It's basically this disruption of togetherness, both couples and families 
by devices. It's something everybody immediately understands. And some of the early research is pretty actually staggering, showing that higher levels of disruption and interruption of this togetherness, which is fairly rare anyhow, um, are related to more uh, acting out on the part of the children, uh, worse couple relationship satisfaction, more depression uh, uh, symptoms from mothers, and lower enjoyment when a t as a, the device is being used in a setting like now, um, there's lower enjoyment of that event, even if it's a positive event, and more boredom. And this is true of family groups. And one study showed that 61% of mothers said that um, you know, technology interferes with couples' time. 33% it said it does so at least uh, you know, for conversation once a day. I think we all know what this is talking about. Um, and, uh, you know, so this kind of techno interference changes togetherness in really extreme ways. It's a togetherness that we need as humans. I mean, one of the core elements of human flourishing, if not the core, is belonging, is connectivity. People grow sick. People actually have higher mortality when they're lonely. Um, it also shifts this technoference, shifts what is the third place, I think. You know, it, this is again an unintended consequence, something I believe that we're just beginning to wake up to. You know, the idea that we can now call in the order and not talk to the barista. The idea that when I'm a very directionally challenged person and I live in New York City, which is pretty much a grid, but I can hardly make my way around and I'm actually not even very good at reading maps, so I like to ask directions. And now, People look at me as if I'm crazy. I have a phone, why aren't you using it? And I just found this incredible new research by a University of Virginia professor that talked about um, what's being lost when you don't ask directions. You know, he gave uh, people on a college campus uh, directions to a new unfamiliar building. Some took their phones, some didn't. Those who took their phones got there faster. They were more efficient. They were happier, and they had much, much less sense of social belonging and to their community. The ones with their phones was a little bit more difficult, but there's the ease and the efficiency that we, you know, that we value so much over everything today, over the unquantifiable. Just like, you know, um, so are weak ties expendable, and is the third place not something that's really? Um, something we need anymore. I think that's really important. And finally, as far as the new type of relationships, which I think aren't zero sum, but yet do clash. You know, there are studies that show that time online takes away from face to face uh, for younger people, which can lead to depression. I was just listening to a, a Yale professor on a panel the other night who said that one of the new longitudinal studies relating Facebook to depression uh, you know, is so strong that if we were talking about cigarettes, we would, cause it we would call it causal. It's a longitudinal correlational study, but it's so strong that we would say cigarette smoking caused cancer if there was the same kind of research. And so I think online, this, uh, you know, this context of social comparison, the minimalness, 
the, the, the stripping away of the biological cues that humans need to understand each other, the, prone, you know, the fact that it's prone to misunderstanding, and that's you know, asynchronous so often makes it a very different type of relating. Um, you know, this is something that can't be ignored. Um, and, and finally, I think maybe most interesting but most on our horizon is the relationship that we're having with the devices and the machinery. It's not just a part of the fabric of our life, a part of the ether, but it is something we are loving into itself. We're personifying. Um, you know, one study I found, I, I found showed that a third of smartphone owners rated on scales of emotional closeness their device as close or closer to many of their friends. Far closer to grandparents, far closer than roommates and sports team members. And they was, these were adults, they weren't just kids uh, who were reading that. That's pretty uh, a strong connection. And um, you know, again, while this is not zero sum, I think it's really worrisome and a lot of technologists I know, scientists, roboticists are extremely worried simply because humans are cheap dates. We are so easily uh, both controlled, manipulated, and um, you know, willing to fall in love with something with a couple of eyes and a little bit of skin. Um, one researcher at Yale um, you know, had, uh, has a robot named Nico, just retired, uh, who is, plays rock, paper, scissors, and also card games with students. When um, two students played with the robot, and one student was called away out of the room, and the robot began to cheat, you know, cheating that absent student, um, all it took for the robot to um, make the other student not, only 50% of the students told the other human being when they came back in the room that there had been cheating to begin with, but all it took for, their, for that uh, reporting of cheating to fall to zero was if the robot went or looked the person in the eye. I mean, we're, we're really cheap dates. I just, just very quickly say that I think there's also good news. There are um, exciting studies that show that um, when, when people are given kind of perspective-taking um, inducements online, you know, a day in the life of a minority, a day in the life of a Roma in Europe, uh, person, they, you know, that on, those online cognitive perspective-taking inducements um, lowered bias for up to a year, not only for that minority, but for others like refugees. That's exciting. That can happen online. That can be a form of re re relationship building. Um, the conformity that we tend to ha fall into so easily as humans also is being um, reversed or used in good, profitable ways. And by that I mean, if on Twitter a white supremacist is issuing messages of hate, and a um, a person who's a white male, kind of within their in-group, uh, but who opposes that hate, gives one or two messages saying, "Oh come on, man, what are you doing?" or something even that subtle, then the messages go hate right down. So this sort of proactive, positive use of conformity can be really, and I haven't really talked about free speech. 
but yes, yes, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pass it on there. But I think that's, those are some of the relationship issues, I think. So I think one lesson that we all learn at some point in our lives online um, kind of comes down to the internet is people. Sort of stealing that from an old movie line and repurposing it. But the internet really is people, and I think it's difficult to keep that in mind on a regular basis, and it takes some conscious effort um, to make sure that we do keep that in mind because it's so easy to strip away the humanity when it's just text on a screen, um, when it's just an avatar on a screen, or maybe even just a photo on a screen. Um, and we get such good feedback when a comment can go out and it is quickly reaffirmed, either in the positive or the negative, but we get such, the, such a hit of dopamine, um, of affirmation, that it keeps feeding on itself. And so I, I think that it's far easier to strip away the humanity and just reply to a comment or, or make a snide remark um, and get what we think are allies or get that affirmation at the expense of someone else to the point that it really isn't even at the expense of someone else, it's at the expense of the text that's on the screen or at the expense of a persona of someone that we think is at the other end um, receiving some of these comments. And that's where I think uh, we have the biggest hurdle to overcome is to see our hyper-connectedness as being connected to people, not just connected to accounts or followers or likes um, that we may or may not uh, be accumulating. Because if we don't keep that in mind, it's hard to fall back on that feeling of empathy for other human beings, which I think we're all capable of, um, but we certainly need to practice um, at it, being able to feel and not only express. So for me, I think um, you know the, the social media platforms, they've done a very good job at connecting so many more people to one another. Um, but there still is that sense that, you know, outside of the, the people that we have the face-to-face -face physical relationship with, there, there's not that same love, that same quality of relationship with the people um, who we may not have had that physical interaction with in the past, so they almost become expendable or disposable. And that's the lesson that we're passing on. And I'm thinking about a podcast that I listened to recently where one of the guests was saying that uh, his, his toddler, I believe his two-year-old daughter, uh, was being put down to bed, and he said goodnight, and she replied, um, like and subscribe. <laughs> right? And took me a second, and then we sort of got this chuckle, um, both on, on the podcast and, and then to, to myself there. I was thinking, oh, yeah, that's what she's learning from watching so much YouTube. And I bet that anyone with small children, nieces or nephews like I have, you realize, yeah, they really are learning social cues. It's not just about the content, but it's actually the learning of how to interact with people, whether that be physically or digitally. Those lessons are being passed on, and I don't know how to correct for that. I, I, I don't know, you know what goes on in a toddler's brain when they're thinking that like and subscribe is, is a totally socially appropriate, socially appropriate way of saying goodnight or even goodbye, um, but it makes sense. Um, you know, I don't know how many more times they need to hear goodnight means goodnight, um, or if they would even be able to change that behavior because it is learned at such an early age. It is shaping their outlook on life. How do we correct 
some of these inappropriate behaviors that are learned at such an early age. And that's where my concern about the hyper-connectedness comes in, um, is that we as humans, just we aren't very good with dealing with a large number of humans within our networks. And so can we rewire ourselves um, culturally and socially to become more accustomed to that and have that empathy built into the fabric of our social networks, literally and figuratively speaking? What would I say to, to Facebook? Well, I, I would say the same thing I'd say to, to any other platform um, or anyone else for that matter, which is enforce your rules. Just simply enforce your rules. Um, if you're going to have a code of conduct, enforce the rules. If there's going to be a reporting mechanism, make sure that people feel like their voice is being heard. If someone comes across something um, on the platform they find objectionable or is outright threatening, they should feel confident that what they're experiencing can be reported up to the people who control the platform and that the issue will be resolved. Now, resolution may not mean that that content is taken down. It might be a reply saying, yes, this falls within the rules of our community. But communities are all based upon rules. And without those rules, mm -hmm. it, it falls apart. Um, I think the, the biggest test for all these social platforms is the Trump exception, right? I think that any social platform that has an obvious outlier needs to make the decision and really communicate it well that if the rules don't apply to everyone, why don't those rules apply and what is that threshold? Talk about Twitter. Twitter has taken people off of their platform, both those um, with a few followers, those with millions of followers, but there is an outlier that is obviously breaking the rules, breaking the code of conduct. Twitter set the rules, Twitter is not enforcing the rules. How are we as a community going to deal with that? Are we going to punish the folks that make the rules? It doesn't look like it. It's certainly benefiting some people to see the rules being broken because that break in the rules is going in their favor. It is allowing them to hear certain kinds of speech that they agree with. It is also allowing them to see the suppression of certain speech that they don't agree with. And that speech in and of itself may fall within the rules, so it should be allowed. Um, and so I, I think that that is a, a bigger issue for these social platforms, for the executives, to be able to stand up, confidently communicate these are our rules, these are how they're going to be reinforced, and these are clearly the punishments. And those have to be exacted in a way that is consistent with the rules. Otherwise, the only lesson that people are learning is that the rules don't apply to everyone. And the surest way to make sure that the rules don't apply to you are to become popular. So I guess to, to take the questions in order following up on, on the censorship point, um, I guess my answer or what I would tell Mark Zuckerberg is to get out of the business of censorship. Um, and the reason I say that is because um, a lot of these social media platforms are not altruistic actors. Um, we can't, I, you know, quite frankly, I don't trust them to make decisions that are not driven necessarily by profit or by political influence. Um, and they're not very good at censorship. Um, and when I say they're not very good at it, I mean they're not very good at applying it equitably. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, so we know um, there were lots of, um, there were some cases where individuals were attempting to live stream police brutality. Those were taken off of Facebook. Um, there was a case where 
the same exact content when posted by an African-American woman was taken down and her account was deactivated. Um, thinking that something might be wrong and thinking that it was odd, she asked her white friends to post the same content and nothing happened. And so I think when we have to talk, when we talk about these platforms and we talk about censorship, we have to recognize that they are going to be influenced by many of the same things that exist in society, by power, by race, by class. And I quite frankly don't trust Facebook or Twitter or a lot of these companies to always make the right decision. Now when I'm saying that, do I mean that we don't need to do things in society to address um, racism, to address hate, to address um, other issues? Of course we need to. I just don't think that this is the solution. The solution is much more complicated. Um, the solution means addressing um, structural issues within our society that are not as easy as you know, clicking a button and having a, a Facebook post come down. So I guess that's what I would say to Mark Zuckerberg. Um, I think on the broader connectivity point, you know, to me, the internet has been really awesome with connectivity in certain ways, right? Um, you see activists um, finding each other. You see parents whose child have rare diseases able to reach out to other parents. Um, so I think that one thing that the internet has been good at is giving people the ability to find people like them, right? Because you seek those people out. Um, I think that one of the things that it is not necessarily great at is connecting people or forcing people who are different and disagree into the same room. Um, I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, you know, if, if I'm going through my um, Facebook feed, right, and um, the Kavanaugh nomination was something that I felt very strongly about, if I saw a post from somebody who um, disagreed, so often I was just like, you know what, I'm going to silence this person, I'm not going to look at it, I just don't feel like it, this is what I feel, I'm not in the mood to read this today. Um, I had to have that conversation with an acquaintance of mine, and I couldn't just shut him off. I wish I had had a mute button. I didn't have a mute button, right? I actually had to sit and have the conversation. And so I think the solution to this, you know, the internet feeding you what you want to hear and want to see is deliberately seeking out the opposite. Um, I've done an experiment where instead of reading the newspaper I normally read, I read all the newspapers I hate to read, right, to see what they're saying about the same issue. Um, having, you know, deliberately seeking out individuals who might be different from you. And so I think that that's something we as, as humans can do when we understand that we're sort of in a bubble and we're, we've been captured in our bubble and it's become, becoming harder for us to understand the opposite point of view and to have a, a rational, calm discussion with the opposite point of view. Um, okay, well, if we could ask the audience a question, I would ask what's the difference between censorship and editorial responsibility? Because um, it's when we don't like it, we call it censorship, and when we like it, we call it editorial responsibility. Um, but I, there is maybe um, some meaning we can give to the word censorship, which is it has to do with power. So the only reason we talk about Facebook uh, or Zuckerberg when he, when he um, takes down you know, Alex Jones and then Alex Jones um, screams that he's censoring him is because Facebook has all this power, and it just shouldn't have all that power. It just shouldn't matter that much. Um, who Facebook takes down because there are alternatives. So I would suggest to Mark Zuckerberg that um, he become a B corporation or a nonprofit and have different motivations. Um, he spin off um, some of his business um, or he, you know, submit and don't lobby against um, uh, government um, efforts to create more competition. Um, so again, I think a lot of this is structural. Um, 
with respect to, again, what we call um, censorship, I mean, I, to, to Nima's point, I don't think there's any way that they can avoid censoring if we understand that concept broadly because they are making choices about what's, what, what um, uh, surfaces on our feeds and what surfaces in our, um, in our searches in ways that we don't understand and can't know and are not transparent to us. Um, so, for example, uh, the platforms make the choice to reward us for being with like-minded people or to accommodate our desire to mute uh, voices we don't want to hear. It doesn't have to be that way. That's just what's um, uh, most revenue producing for them. They make choices uh, based on behavioral advertising and the way advertising is served to push us to m ever more extreme positions. So if you've seen Zeynep Tufekci's um, research, you start out as a vegetarian looking for vegetarian content and you end up with vegan content. You start out being interested in 10K races and you're into ultra marathons um, because that's just where it's, that, that's the content that is stickier and that keeps you on the platform longer. They don't have to organize um, these platforms to maximize time spent, but that's what's most revenue producing. So as a result, it, it, it produces the Alex Jones. Um, so then there's the question of do we take Alex Jones off, but there's a prior question about who gets to be that popular in, uh, in the first place. So, you know, this, the censorship question is incredibly tricky because they don't do it well because they, even if they wanted to, they won't do it um, consistently. And I think, um, uh, and maybe because I do First Amendment law and I'm sensitive, like Nima is, to, the, um, to, to, to government regulation in this area, a couple of sort of maybe perhaps less satisfying fixes, but, um, but constitutional ones that we might consider, would be requiring more transparency about how these platforms do make their decisions about taking down accounts or even about elevating certain kinds of speech. So if you look at Facebook's transparency report, where they do talk about how much, how they have enforced their terms of service, it's in the most general um, and sort of opaque ways. And it, I think if it were more detailed, we might feel more satisfied, at least understand or have a better claim um, of uh, discriminatory treatment um, if, there, if that existed. And then the second sort of small fix um, would be more due process so that if you are taken down for whatever reason, there is a clear procedure. And this is only because they have so much power. If they didn't have so much power, I don't think this would be necessary because they're, they are sitting kind of like a government that we should have sort of the rights that citizens do with respect to the government to go petition Facebook and figure out um, and have some recourse uh, if we thought we were taken down unfairly. Well, this was excellent beginning for more discussion with you. So on the connectiveness, let me just say, uh, the jury is still out. Uh, it may, we may find that there's some loss on one hand and some gain on the other hand, like connecting the activists. Or I like to think about a young gay person in the deep south who cannot talk about to anybody, but can go on the internet and find others. I like also to make a minor technical point. If you look at the studies uh, which uh, compare human connectiveness to screen time, they automatically assume that anytime you look at the screen, you're just studying something, you're Googling, not, not interacting. So they don't, they don't count that as a possible connectiveness. And they disregard that the average American watches, used to watch television six hours, six hours a day. So maybe some of what we're losing 
is not human connectedness, but television washing time. Anyhow, that's for another day. Uh, as to the uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, uh, we obviously haven't solved that issue today. So we're going to have a whole other session, a whole evening, devoted only to that question. I hope you all come back and uh, join us. Uh, it's your time now. There are microphones on both sides. So uh, please uh, uh, join the conversation. My name is Dalton Conley, and about 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Elsewhere USA, connecting the changes in the economy, rising inequality, with the sort of constant connectivity, and argued that a lot of traditionally modernist boundaries were eroding as a result of that confluence. For example, home and work used to be two distinct spheres. Now they're not. Um, le even leisure and work, in investment and consumption, and so forth. So I'm kind of on your side with your concerns. But this was supposed to be a debate. So now I'm going to, and I, all I'm hearing about the good side of everything is from Amitai. Um, so I want to throw out some more sort of uh, trends or facts that I, th I would like to hear your response to. So f with respect to kids, uh, today's adolescents uh, use drugs and alcohol at the lowest rates. Um, I think my adolescence was the highest rates um, since, I think, the 50s or, or 60s. Uh, crime is still at its lowest rates since, again, the early 1960s. Um, I don't think we've talked about the fact that because kids are at home on screens, they're not out doing bad things or getting um, mugged or beat up. There, I mean, there's. There's, uh, to, to take your example of the, um, the robot, I think that's a, you know, colluding with the, with the subject to, to lie. I think that's actually good evidence that we're not learning, we're, we're not losing the ability to empathize or to have um, kind of secret communication and understand cues, social cues. It's, if anything, yeah, we're getting tricked by a robot, or we're feeling, so, we're feeling that so much that we're, that we're kind of attributing, anthropomorphizing a robot and, and interacting with a robot. But, um, so I think there's concerns, but uh, I haven't heard anybody sort of, like again, other than Amitai's, um, you know, uh, uh, gay closeted person in the South or lonely single mother in Boston um, about the kind of positive aspects of the current lay of the land, the current information ecology. So if someone could, um, from the panel, talk about kind of what's good now, let's say, for kids growing up um, versus my childhood. I mean, it's friggin' amazing. You can get on, you can get on uh, to Google and or Wikipedia and find out the answer um, to to anything. And and you know, it may short circuit cognition, but it also feeds interests and sparks exploration and. Um, so that's one, that's, that's one obvious one. Yeah, I would just say, however, that I'm very much more concerned about the challenges. I think we know the good things, and I think it's important to remind ourselves, and I celebrate it, and I use it, we all do. I mean, I think we're more picky and choosy about what, what we use, you know, which technologies we use. But I think that crime might be going down, and yet depression is 
a global epidemic, you know, anxiety. I mean, these are really, I think it's really important to wake up to the challenges that we haven't been waking up, waking up to. We've performed a kind of grand social experiment on um, not just the kids, but ourselves. And so I entirely celebrate the great accessibility. It's the worry I have that access doesn't lead to understanding and that you know, the unthinking nature of what I see all around us in terms of both incivility and inability to kind of go deeply into problems. I mean, this is something I think which is really important. I mean, Steven Pinker has the great book on the Enlightenment now, you know, talking about all the positives. And again, it's very true, you know, crime, health, e economic growth. But I'd also have to push back and say that, you know, one of the main findings in terms of the great outgrowth of um, research into a flourishing, human flourishing, is that happiness and GDP aren't the measures that we need to use. We need to have a more expansive understanding of what human flourishing is to encapsulate some of these invisibles and perhaps unquantifiables. I'm sure you're all familiar with the marshmallow test about kids being able to resist impulse to get a, a deferred reward. One of the big concerns about kids and technology is that it's, it's eroding their ability to control impulses, to, to delay gratification, to work through something hard. But actually a meta-analysis has shown that kids' ability to, defer, to pass the marshmallow test and last for longer has been steadily increasing over the last 20 years. So yeah, I, I just think it's, a, it's our reflexive concerns, I mean, I'm glad we all have concerns, but we have to look more closely at the data, whether it's correlation and not, not causation. I completely agree. I still think that that can be right and the concerns can be absolutely urgent, alarming. That research, I know the scientist who just came out with that, it was done with high um, echelon, high economic you know, studies, um, the, the idea that kids can wait longer, partly has to do with the kind of schooling they're be giving, the lack of free time and play time they're given, and it's not happening you know, it's, it's, it's a certain segment of society that had that. So, I mean, again, I really, I, I love it all too, but I think it's really important to wake up to the concerns. I have no problem with that study. I hate marshmallows. <laughs> okay, um, I'd like to discuss something that you said. I don't necessarily agree with you that crime has gone down. We have huge cyber crime. We have identity theft, which is much easier. Uh, with the cyber connectedness. We have cyber bullying when kids are on their screens. So I don't agree with what you said. Um, I, I can respond to that a, a little bit too. I'll, I'll give two positives and a negative positive. Um, I think the folks in the accessibility community are probably benefiting a, a great deal more than what is typically going on in the conversation. Um, folks that might be physically or, or, or mentally um, challenged are, are finding a great deal of advantage when it comes to using technologies to be and stay independent. And I don't think that gets enough credit. We all, or most of us, have devices um, in our pockets, our smartphones that have incredible accessibility functionality. 
that many people will never know about and never need, but the folks that can take advantage of that find it truly life-saving uh, to be able to walk around with the phone and simply point the camera at the outside world that if they cannot see it describes the world to them um, or allows them to have interactions that they otherwise would not have had. And I think that is a, a tremendous benefit that technology offers. Um, uh, I'll go back to the negative. I, I think on the illegal drug use being down, I, I think that there's probably a counter to that, which would be that the prescription drug use is up. So why would you need to abuse illegal drugs when you're just diagnosed with ADD, uh, when you're in kindergarten or first grade, and you just keep that prescription um, throughout high school and then into adulthood and maybe transition into, um, into other drug use. So I'll, I'll cut it off there. I guess it kind of um, shows that you can find a statistic to prove whatever you want, okay? Um, I wasn't finished. No, no, you want to ask a question? Yeah, right? I want to ask a question, but I was just commenting on no, the no, fact no, that you can come good, up with. But no, I, no, okay. I had a question. Okay. The, uh, the challenges that you talk uh, a lot about, um, I want to share with you, um, I have a two-year-old great-grandson. And um, as he's with me, he wants to read a book. It's called uh, Charlie Parker Played Bebop. And as a two-year-old, I mean, you know, we've gone over the book 10 times, 20 times, and he almost knows what's on the pages. Take him over to his other grandmother's house, and his sister's playing with a tablet. He goes in, he takes the tablet. You're macho, or you know, when you were concerned about what happens to the girls. I mean, boys have problems too. So his sister cries, and his grandmother says, go get the cell phone. So she goes get the cell phone, and he takes the cell phone, and he, I mean, you know, at two years old, these are his tendencies. Now, my fear is that he won't really want to read because he's so entertained. And the, the stimulation from the YouTubes and all of that is so much more overwhelming that a book. Now, how do, how, there's no study that's going to really capture that because we're looking at these studies, and the studies are typically funded by the technology companies who want the good things to show up, but you don't see that unintended consequence, therefore it's not measured. Thank you very much. I wasn't finished. <laughs> but see, I mean, and, and again, that just shows how. You paused, uh, so you misled me. Well, I, but that's again what my grandson's going to have to worry about because in reading, you pause. Okay, but with the cell phone or with these technologies, you have instant stimulation. You're already an example of the negative consequence that I'm referring to. So how, I mean, you know, that, that lack of, uh, or that loss of humanness, just example for that. How do we, how do we deal with that? As you've looked at, like I say, most of the studies that probably come back are the ones that are going to glamify or glorify the benefits of it. Okay, uh, can we answer now? Please. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, so I'll not give you uh, not only a chance to answer that, 
But let's focus now for a moment only on solutions, small and big. So, for instance, in France, there's a law which uh, does uh, not allow employers to send emails after work hours. You know, uh, some people uh, announce that they will not respond to emails during the weekend to recreate the Sabbath. So now, these are not big structural solutions like, you know, uh, telling uh, Zuckerberg to sell his company and become not-for-profit tomorrow. But uh, as we respond to the question, we just ask small and big solutions, uh, no more analysis. Yeah, I think we've been talking a lot about um, solutions. You know, the idea of accountability on uh, uh, on inventors, the guidelines that are coming out. Um, you know, uh, asking people to include ethical decisions in AI and robotics. Um, the transparency calls for transparency. I think that's really important. Um, you know, I think that these are. I mean, I would reiterate the need for a bigger push uh, um, toward deliberative type of um, learning from information literacy. You know, the move away from, um, you know, just focusing narrowly on sourcing. Um, one interesting um, small, but I think really important solution um, speaks to the idea of the cognitive narrowing. We've talked, we're talking about social, social types of um, narrowing to you know to the echo chamber type of news, the idea that we're we're hanging in silos of our own kind of mirror-like imagery online, and that's true cognitively as well in many ways because um, new research is showing that um, in terms of science, uh, they uh, when research is put on online. Um, for every year of a journal that's placed online, the number of distinct articles cited drops 14%. So what happens is that what's most popular and therefore most prevailing in the scientific literature is also what is seen and used so that that causes problems so that scientists, say in genetics, are now actually just... Um, focusing on the same few genes that have been studied for the last decades, and that we know the human genome, but we're not taking advantage of the... So the NIH has just, in the last month, started a very, very, very tiny, I'm kind of a drop in the bucket in the Niagara Falls of this problem, but a specific um, you know, initiative to fund work on unknown genes, the genes that have never had a scientific paper published on them. And you know they're literally starting with seven researchers, but that's enormously important because that shows uh, an understanding of the problem and and a way to push the uh, push people into the unknown. Because a lot of what we're talking about is in a fear-based society, you know, clinging to the familiar, clinging to what's known, clinging to what's like us. So, uh, if, That's a if, solution. If, if, can I wait? Just, can I? I just want to address this gentleman's yeah, yeah, um, question because I um, I have the same lament, and I'll just tell you what people tell me, um, which is that we never people thought the same thing with radio that when TV came along we'd lose radio, or when e either of them came along we'd lose books, and we didn't, and they all, or when um, recordings came along that we'd lose um, 
sheet music, right, <laughs> and singing, um, and we didn't. They've all existed side by side, and so probably books will make it, but it's also possible that books will radically change and they'll, always, they'll become kind of multimedia artifacts. Um, and so a little bit of, I think, our, our lament is kind of adjusting to a future where human relationships are really different and the things, um, uh, these, these media artifacts change a lot. And, and I just wanted to, I also wanted to respond to Dalton. Um, you know, I, I just, what your question made me think of, um, all these technologies are good and bad, right? And so, um, and just looking at all these cars go by and thinking about autonomous vehicles and, um, you know, all their promise that they're going to bring us in terms of um, uh, freedom and energy savings and um, re reduction in accidents, and also that we're scared to death about the ethical choices that they're gonna make. Um, and the, you know, who, who is the, the, the economic consequences um, that they will have. And I think one of the things that you're hearing from this panel, maybe a little bit less, it's all doom and gloom, but just it, that we're at this inflection point where um, we want more control and more say. We kind of want these like sort of panels um, uh, to decide what we want, what data we want to be collected, how we want this to move forward. Solutions, uh, I'm pretty, much a straightforward guy. I think we need to have a comprehensive digital literacy program start in preschool and kindergarten and continue on through 12th grade. People shouldn't be getting basic cybersecurity hygiene lessons um, at their first job when they're 24, 25 years old. Um, I think if we start when people start using these devices, we can build a curriculum on a base of how do you as an individual act safely in an environment? And then it grows into how do you as an individual act responsibly within an ecosystem of that environment? Uh, it needs to be the digital equivalence of wash your hands after you use the restroom, look both ways before you cross the street, uh, you know, stop, drop, and roll if you're on fire. Like these are the things that kids need to learn at a very early age so they can learn to appreciate their role in making sure that they keep themselves safe and that they keep their fellow community members safe. Um, and without that, we're gonna have a, we're gonna continue to have a very difficult time um, showing just how much value this internet ecosystem has and how much value we all have when we are within it and the destructive, um, power that we have when we are in it. I was just gonna say um, along those same lines, I think in terms of solutions, one is as part of that kind of literacy, um, teaching kids to understand you know, how to tell what they should trust on the internet versus not trust, right? I think that's part of the, the disinformation conversation we were having um, before. Um, and I also think that we need to address the fact that technology isn't impacting all segments of society equally, right? There are parts of the country where broadband and infrastructure is, is not available to the same sense. And so I do think that one of the, you know, you talk about the good things of technology, my hope is that it would be an equalizer, right? Um, and it hasn't worked out that way always. And so I do think that some of that infrastructure um, should be something that we think about making sure that, that all communities have access to technology in the same way so we don't see these inconsistencies between sort of the have and have nots. As a quick follow-up on that, um, I graduated high school in 1997, and so when I started high school in 93, um, my high school was brand new. It was one of the first in the country to actually have fiber optic cables um, throughout the entire facility. We had broadband, we had TV access, we had computers, 
Um, and so I've basically grown up with broadband internet for more than half my life. Um, and there are still people in this country who don't have even the level of broadband access that I had in the mid-90s. And I think that's a shame and that is a failure of our federal government in making sure that everyone has access to these technologies. All right, last question. I think you kind of touched on this. My name is Charles Acree, and I'm, and I'm into technology. But my question is one of individual group and community cooperation, which I think you have addressed. But it deals with the concept of well-being. Um, I think we have always identified from listening to you that there are different ways of looking at well-being. But do any, any of you have an, a, a suggestion for individuals, families, or communities to look at how they can help assist others in finding well-being, not just for themselves, but for those who are different from themselves, so that we can cooperate better as a community. Thank you. Did you mean digital well-being or well-being on a, on a whole, uh, any kind of well-being? One of the things I've been kind of hearing is that people tend to separate well-being when they're looking at technology and well-being when they're looking at people when it's really the same. We might get to it a different way, but just because you're going through a tool to identify how you feel or what your point of view is, you're still the person that has some degree of well-being and you consider it true for yourself. And the question is, do you consider it to be true for others? Or is it so different that others consider what you consider to be well-being harmful to them? And then how do, you, how do you bring those two together in a way that you can see well-being across the board? So I'm looking at technology as just a median, not necessarily a determining factor. Well, I think it's, I think I did mention really briefly, but I think it's really important and interesting that there has been this, um, you know, rise in interest in well-being that's, um, you know, measured or understood beyond um, mere happiness or mere GDP. So the, the, the expansion of the notion of well-being is really important. Um, I also think it's really important to understand it in, in a non-static uh, in a kind of dynamic fashion um, across the lifespan because, you know, well-being can be, a, you know, often just quantified in a, in a, you know, in a one specialized way. But I think that, you know, it's, it's really a dynamic process. And I'm not sure that I know that anyone, how anyone is talking about that, but it seems really important that it, it changes. And so it has to have a fluidity and flexibility. Um, there's also a lot of work now on both subjective and objective well-being measures. Um, so that, you know, the idea of whether you feel your life is satisfying or whether you're physically, your longevity is dropping as it is in the United States, you know, those are two different things, but all, both are very important. Yeah, that's really an important point for us to take with us because the subject of our session was well-being and indeed removed from notion of simple happiness to, as you said, first to subjective well-being as a broader concept and now to objective idea that we measure how much income you have and how good is your health. So to get us some other measures than simply did you smile on Mondays, you know. But we have room for a very short, one more round, as you know other people at the microphones. So let's just focus, really focus on that question, the silo question. So here you have people who watch only Fox, and here you have people who watch only MSNBC, and we all agree it would be nice if they once in a while heard the other side. What are you going to do about that? You're not, not going to go home unless you answer that question. 
Um, what am I going to do about it? Um, I mean, there there are there have been a lot of interesting proposals that are. This is not a new problem, and and um, I, we used to have something called the fairness doctrine, which required um, uh, broadcast stations to air opposing viewpoints on controversial issues. Um, and the same things have been proposed for um, online fora that they would have to, you know, have a link or or a flag or or um, uh, you know, side by sides of opposing viewpoints. Um, I, you know, so th that would be a possibility. But I think probably um, a better idea um, would be, you know, to start programming. And this again goes to the business model um, uh, to start uh, surfacing um, and making it advantageous for advertisers to support this um, surfacing alternative viewpoints when, um, uh, when people are spending their time online? Um, I think probably the, the twofold solution I can think of, one is people acknowledging this is a problem and forcing themselves to read other content, right? That's all within our power. I can go to Fox News if I want to. It's just a lot of people often don't seek out that other viewpoint. Um, the other, I think, is probably a, a more complex solution, but I think often when you, we're seeing these, these divisions, whether it's um, you know, in, in politics, the fault lines are really, um, you know, race or um, socioeconomic status. Um, a lot of these other factors that often lead to, I think, broader segregation in society. So I can think of, you know, there has to be places where we overcome that, that segregation, whether it's self-segregation or whether it's a product of, um, of class and race. And, you know, I think of my, my own upbringing. I didn't go to a local high school. I went to a school where we were bused. And so as a result of that, you know, my high school looked like the United Nations, right? There was probably 30 to 40 percent African American, 20 to 30 percent Latino. There was, you know, every Asian representative. There was also a white population. I don't think most people had that same experience growing up, and it was because I was sort of put into this place where there was um, a forced, a force equalizing, so to speak. Um, and I do think that we need more places in our country where there is that force equalizing, because it's really relationships and people. We can talk about technology all day, but well-being is often going to be the function of, of a lot of other things. Uh, at this point, uh, we are about to read the conclusion, but before we proceed, uh, the light is my face. I don't, I don't see. Is, is Kai Lindbergh here? So uh, behind this meeting is really a force. And without Sky, we would not be here. So would you all help me thank uh, Sky for all the good work she did. And, and thank you all for uh, coming. Uh, next month, we're going to meet right here to discuss the question, uh, what makes America great? And I, I've been asked you to remind you that uh, Maggie Jackson is available to uh, uh, sign her book if you buy it first. And uh, uh, let me now ask you to help me thank the panel for what was truly an excellent discussion. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Arena Civil Dialogue exploring well-being in a digital world. Let us know your thoughts on the Arena On Air topics by tagging us and using the hashtag ArenaOnAir. Thanks for listening!